going on everybody welcome to another episode of your intention matters the podcast thank you very much for being here listening watching on youtube my name is still paul madat today i have kevin o'hearn he is director of sales training and enablement for international at a small little company called mcgraw hill coming to us from the gta i'm a little bit biased but one of the best cities in the world kevin man how are things things are great thank you so much paul yeah i appreciate you being here do me a favor say hi to everybody provide a quick intro And then let's get ready to dive into your story. Awesome. So I'm Kevin O'Hearn. I'm in downtown Toronto right now. Cool, crisp uh, December day. And so I've been working at McGraw-Hill for seven years. I started as a sales rep and then have done a few kind of gigs along the way. And now I support our sales training and enablement efforts internationally. So I view that as, as helping our folks amplify their own selling efforts. So you're not kind of starting at square one with every sales engagement. Good. Well, listen, thanks so much for being here. Uh, I don't know this to know this, but is December a busy time year end for you guys or? Yeah. So January with school starting back in January, you're kind of gearing up for the start of second semester and between January, you know, four and 15, you're absolutely insane. So hopefully people are getting a little end of year vacation in, ideally a little COVID vacation and then uh, getting ready to gear it up in January. All right, let's get, the, let's get rid of the role here then. So as you know, the title of the podcast, Kevin, is Your Intention Matters. And as we've been discussing, that's really built on my foundation that nothing is really given to any of us. And most of us in the world of, of sales and sales enablement never even thought we'd get into it, let alone sustain a career. And we all have different paths and meandering, you know, big decisions to make and meandering paths and so on. And so with that said, I'm ready for you to share your story. You ready to go here? Awesome. Let's do it. All right. All right, man, let's go back in time a little bit here. We're going back to 2011. You're a Mustang, Western. Talk to me, man. How did you get into a psychology and psych? And what did you think you'd be doing? Did you have a vision at the time when you were graduating or it was just, I got to get my degree and we'll figure it out? So when I was finishing high school, it was always going to be Western. So my dad was into the idea of Queens potentially. But for me, for whatever reason, I, I was hell bent on Western since really since I knew I was going to university. And when I got there, um, I had done really well in high school economics. So economics was gonna be my home. And I had Michael Parkin, I mean, a very famous economist teach me first year economics and I was doing well and, and things were good. But at Western, you're required to have a, whatever the average was between your calculus course and your economics course. And, and calculus was Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 8 a.m. and it was a walk down the hill and I forgot the building, but I remember the experience and I I didn't make it there as many times as I probably needed to in order to keep up that kind of average. So I was gifted a 50 in calculus and at the end of that year, I had to decide where I was gonna major. And the course that I really loved was intro psych and it was taught in a huge lecture hall And I just remember kind of my brain really churning all the time. And I liked thinking about the concepts that they were bringing up. And so that's where I landed. And and before you knew it, I was a psych major. And then as that evolved along the way, I picked up um, kind of a double major in psych and social. And that's what we ended up finishing with. 
You know, Kevin, I didn't go to Western, but I had a good buddy of mine who did back in, in in the 90s when I was in university days. And I might be dating myself here, but I used to go for the weekends because like the seeps was there, the shot was there, the nags head, I, th I think it was there. Uh, were they still there at your time or any of those kind of moved on? The seeps was definitely there. Was it? And I mean, probably some part of the reason why it was hard to make it to all the classes. Totally. A great place. And you know, people would ask you in your university, did you go elsewhere for the weekends? And I always said at Western, I was hard pressed to leave, right? So yeah. it was a great place to spend your weekends and not a bad place Monday to Friday either. Well, okay. I'm glad to hear that I'm not that dated on that one. So, but listen, I, in all seriousness, I wanted to ask you, so you're going down the path and you end up, so to your point, you get gifted a 50 and now you got a, you're at a fork in the road. Any, any pressure from your parents at that point? Like, was that instilled? Was there like a disappointment here? Like, now what do you do? And was, was that a driver for continuing on? Or did you have a thought of, this isn't for me and what do I do now? Like, what was it like when you had to, when you had to make that choice? So school was always um, very important. My mom uh, was a kindergarten teacher. So school was important when I was little through high school. And it was always going to be a university education for me. And I think when the economics thing stopped working, it was on me to make sure this appeared to be a smooth transition to everybody else, right? So there was no coming home and going, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Right. But it was as though this was always the plan. And that's sort of what we rolled into. And I think in the back of everyone's mind, they go, okay, well, what does a psychology degree really um, prepare you to do? What are you gonna do with this in the end? And I don't think I had the answer to that. I still didn't mm. answer that by the time I graduated. Um, but it showed um, your ability to pick up new information exists, whether you study biology, psychology, or anything else, right? And if you're a learner, you can sort of show that. When you graduated with your BA and you're ready to go, was that enough for you? Did you get into the workforce or did you, did you continue to re your education? Yeah, so I was leaving Western and I felt... Um, like I was not prepared to really crush any job. And so I sort of floated around in my mind for a little bit, whether this was going to be law school or business school. Uh, and I ended up doing my MBA at Dalhousie and that couldn't have worked out any better. I, my grades were okay, not spectacular. I tested pretty well. So I had a couple options, but the East coast always sort of felt like home and that's where we landed. Um, and then it turned out to be kind of, an awesome use of those two years. Are you a Toronto boy, born and raised? Yes, Toronto, born and raised. Okay, great. So, okay, so you're from Toronto. Then you go to Western, which to me is kind of like North York. It's like a, like a, but, but the same size, half a million people and so on. And obviously a little bit different with the university factor in Western and the partying and so on that kind of goes with it. But Dow, man, that's in like Halifax. And so, I mean, to totally di same country and et cetera. But I mean, just a totally different lifestyle. How did you adjust to the Maritimes? Did you like it? Was it slower than you thought? Was it a partier than you thought? What was it like? I absolutely love the Maritimes. I've always felt like I was an East Coast kid who was just born in the wrong place. I, <sighs> I always felt like that was where I was supposed to be. Um, so we had had some family vacations in Halifax uh, as a younger guy. So when I had the opportunity to go back, I really jumped at it. Certainly slower. You know, when you're yeah. standing in line at Tim Hortons, nobody gets angry. I mean, it takes forever to do anything and there's nobody, you know, up on your All good. a hard time. I mean, it's great. Yeah. All right. So then you, you, you get your MBA. And so now that's when was that a one year or two year? 
Yeah, two years. Okay, so now we're into 2013. All right, so where did you go when you came back to Ontario? Now you got to start working. Did you take a job right away? Did you take some time? What'd you do? So when I was graduating, we had finished and then we went back in May for graduation. And I was sitting in my um, empty apartment. I had moved everything out and I was sitting on the ground and I took my first call with um, McGraw-Hill. And it was, I, I needed a job. If I was coming back to Ontario, um, I, I, I was very clear on the idea that I needed to work. And this sort of was something that I applied to on LinkedIn. And I ended up getting connected with um, one of the sales leaders in McGraw-Hill. And we had a quick phone interview. And then the first thing I came back to was a big panel, big panel interview in the mm. So it was, it was Whitby at the time, and I was applying for a role as a sales rep, and I was not good. I was really not good at that panel. There were six senior people, and I was sweating because I wanted this, and I needed this, and it's hard to give your best answers when you feel you know personally under the gun, right? And that's yeah. what they made me feel. That's how I felt. Um, so I'm sure that they were like, geez, who is this guy? Um but thankfully they gave me a shot and then it turned out to be just an awesome role. I spent a lot of time on campus. I covered um, some schools in Southwestern Ontario and got to spend time, you know, kind of constantly on campus, constantly learning. You know, your comment about I needed a job, I think is probably refreshing and probably is one that, that a lot of people can align to. I think about when I got into sales at Xerox, call it 20 years ago now, you know, I didn't have any background in sales and I, I took the, I, I took the interview and, and because I was out of work and I needed to pay rent and, you know, eat and gas and everything else. But I certainly didn't have this vision for a 20 year career in sales and leadership and training and so on. So, and, but, and to your point, it's also tough when you're in a spot where you feel like I really need this. You're almost operating mentally out of a state of desperation because like, I can't, like, I need the, like, yeah, I want this job. I got it, but I, I, I need this more so than I want it. And that probably came through. So fortunately for you, you did, you did enough for them to say, okay, we're going to give the kid a shot here and away you go. So when you started with, um, with McGraw Hill, did you go in with a, long-term vision uh let's give it six months and see how i like sales what was what was your mindset in terms of taking a sales role yeah and i wanted to see i had done a little bit of sales prior to that so as a younger guy i had done i'd sold knives i had sold we, we did eavesdrop work so i sold door to door and i got used to the idea of cold calling so that part was already comfortable for me and I figured, hey, let's give this a shot. And it was combining two things that I liked, right? Which was uh, selling or what I knew about selling at that time and being at university. Mm -hmm. I had spent seven years at university. So this was going to be a place that I'd be comfortable. And when those two sort of melded together for me, I felt like, hey, we'll give this a, a good crack. And then it, um, it went well, right? So you started exceeding target and you started you know, getting to know um, instructors and building your network and, and starting to have a good time. And then I was thinking, okay, well, what's the next thing, right? Am I going to be a sales manager? And how am I going to get into sales leadership? And it certainly wasn't the direct line that I expected. But sooner or later, we got there. Where did the drive come from wanting to do more? 
especially leadership, like a sales manager's job, because I've done both and I was a terrible sales manager. I wasn't terrible as a human, but I was highly ineffective. I just didn't know what I was doing. I managed from Kevin, this is how I did it in field. So this is how you should do it. It's like, no, nah, that's a recipe for disaster. And, but I, I had it in my head. Well, that next step is I have to be a manager because that's kind of what society says you should do. Did that come from anywhere or did they tap you on the shoulder early on to say, we want you to continue working here? The drive to become a manager, what was that from? Yeah, my dad was a sales leader as well. Um, so I kind of saw it modeled for me mm. was there was always the idea uh, coming from my dad of, you know, succeed in what you're doing now with an eye on what you're doing next. And that was sort of the mentality that I took. I had been really fortunate that at McGraw-Hill, they had given me lots of, you know, opportunities for small leadership items, right? So you presented a sales meeting or you get to mentor a fellow rep and you just start to get your toes into um, what it looks like to be a sales leader. And the pieces sort of started to fall together after that. Um, I agree with you that the skill set to be a good rep and to be a good sales manager are really completely different, right? Yeah. Your best reps, you make them sales managers because that's what you're supposed to do. But the two skill sets are actually not the same. Yeah. Okay. So how long were you in field as an account executive? Two years. Two years. Okay. And so what was next for you? Uh, so next I moved into product. So in the way that McGraw-Hill works, kind of your three biggest parts of the organization are sales, product, and marketing. And product, you work with the authors and um, digital platform folks to bring not only our textbooks, but our digital learning solutions to market. So I covered a variety of different um, subject areas, economics, sciences, math, that sort of thing. Uh, and we did that for five years and that went through uh, a McGraw-Hill move from Whitby to Toronto. And now this lovely Toronto office, unfortunately, sits closed at this very moment. But as soon as they open it back up, I can actually walk there. So uh, 2021, hopefully. You know, your, your, your product manager's job in the product role, was that a, a staff role or did you have a sales quota along with that? So it has a sales target, though you are not held as directly responsible as you would be as a salesperson, right? So you've got a portfolio goal and mine was, you know, between 12 and 15 million during whatever time periods. And you obviously wanted to exceed and I held myself responsible for that, but it's not as directly um, carry, um, quota carrying as it would be in sales. I see. Okay. So you make the shift after a couple of years and it sounds like you were in that role for the better part of four to five years. There must have been something good. What, what did you like about it? Why did you stay so long in that role? Yeah, it's um, one of those things. And everyone says, oh, it's the people. You know, it's the people. And it sounds like a, a corny response, but it really is. When you get to spend time with people that you get along with and, and people who are driving you to be better personally, professionally, it feels like home. And McGraw-Hill has always felt like home for me. And I continue to... to drive forward in that role because I felt like this was the best place. You know, it's not an adversity to risk as far as going somewhere else. I'm pretty, you know, pro risk, but it's where is the best place for me to make my next step? And I continued to feel like that was McGraw-Hill. So I, I want to chat with you about the factors and decision to moving into training and enablement because you're in field. Okay. That's, that's a whole set of skill sets right there. That's required to figure out how do I, how do I prospect? How do I qualify? How to write a proposal? How do I close all skill sets that a salesperson needs? Then you get into product, which is a whole other skill set. 
And then from my experience with enablement and training, that's a whole other animal into itself. And so, and that happened this year during a pandemic. So did they come find you? Did you kind of say after five years, I need to do something else? Like what was the process like to move into enablement and how are you enjoying it thus far despite the pandemic? Yeah, I was kind of knocking down their door for this role. When I saw this pop up, uh, I felt like this was a great home for me because it sort of exists at the intersection between sales and product to some degree. And when I say that, um, product has a lot of project management skill sets. So you are managing timelines and teams and all that sort of thing. And I think that the sales enablement role has a lot of that as well. So we are eight international regions with about 350, 400 salespeople. Anything that you're doing in this role is done on a big scale. So mm. your project management needs to be really sharp in order to be able to implement um, solutions on the ground, be that in Canada or be that in Australia and India, um, especially from a distance, right? And everything gets a little bit more challenging from the distance that we're in right now. And you took this job in the summer, did you not? Yes. Exactly. All right. So let, let's chat about 2020. And if I heard you correctly earlier, I know you're from Toronto, but do you actually live in Toronto? Yeah. So I'm living okay. in town Toronto right now. And so that means you're in a condo. Yes. Okay. So a, a condo in a pandemic lockdown, I mean, you can live in a penthouse. It's still not probably enough space. So um, how has 2020 been for you mentally? Uh, are there people you haven't met yet face-to-face? Are you on WebEx and Zoom all day? Like what, what's, how, how have you been handling 2020, even just mentally, as we all try to figure this thing out. Yeah, the condo thing is an interesting one, right? And 500 and something square feet seems totally fine when you assume that you'll be uh, out for dinner and out and about in the office most of the time. Uh, it's not a lot of square feet when you're here for 20 something hours out of the day. So we've been focused on getting out for walks. Uh, it sounds like a small step, but you got to get outside and give yourself a chance for fresh air if you want to have any um, shot at having a good day. So I, I've been focused on that. As far as the meeting of people, I'm on Zoom a ton of the time. Mm. So I'm high on the camera on idea. So I'm very much, whether it's most of my calls with certain parts of the world are at you know 6.30 or 7 in the morning this time. Uh, and then all the way into my evening, and I am on camera at all times. I feel like it's a small thing, but it's an easier way to help build that rapport, especially because it's it's so far, um, you're so far physically removed, right? Um, I think this role would have had a lot more travel had I been in a different time period. So yeah. with folks overseas, you would go for a week or two weeks and do some sales training engagements and get to meet their leadership and all that sort of thing. So I've really put it on myself to be able to um, meet people, learn about their business, and also have myself as, as a recognizable source of support, even though we are um, not met in person. Yeah, you know, your comment regarding the camera on, I know is a funny one. I mean, a lot of people don't like to have it on. They have their reasons. But, you know, sometimes there's a perception to that. My story is whenever I'm doing a training session and they don't have their camera on, I think, well, they, they must be multitasking. They must be doing so, even though they might not be. Some people just aren't comfortable on camera. You know, they might go like this, move their hair or something, and they don't want to be people to see them. But I think, no, no, let's put the camera on it because the, even us recording this, for those people listening on Apple or Spotify, you can only hear the audio, but we're doing this via Zoom right now. And Kevin and I can see each other. 
And I find that it's a lot more engaging. Like I can react to your body language and vice versa. And, uh, and so I, that's why I like to do it. And, and uh, so I'm glad to hear that, you know, despite the fact that, you know, you've had the inconvenience of being locked down and at home, your comment was true about a 500 square foot apartment, 500 square foot bedrooms, pretty good. But when you're there all day, you know, and you're actually a, a, a awake and having to work, all of a sudden you realize, no, nah, it's not as big as I thought it was. So it wasn't designed for that, right? No, definitely not designed for that. Yeah. And the having the camera on teaches you some things about yourself too, right? So you're sort of videoing your training engagements and, and posting them so other people can view in different time zones. I started to realize I'm moving my head all over the place. So mm. I'm out here swimming with my head going left to right. So now my focus is look forward, eyes on the camera. And it's good to coach yourself on those little things. Yeah. Well, Kevin, it's been a lot of fun speaking with you. I mean, you're, you're you know, less than a decade really into your career, seven, eight years into it now. What's been working for you, man? What's been your foundation? Yeah, and I think there's been a lot of people who have um, taught me some really good lessons on on shoe leather and what it's really required, um, the effort that's required to work. And I, I don't know if you, as you start your career, I don't know if you appreciate that up front in those first couple of years, the difference between um, what you think you're doing and what is really needed to do to succeed. And I found that a lot of that is just time and effort, right, is making sure that you are up early and grinding and you really got to enjoy that grind if you want to get mm. where you're going to be that's um, been part of it and the other thing that I would highlight is you've got to be comfortable with ambiguity and this was something that was drilled home to me by a few strategy professors at Dalhousie but you are never going to have all the answers and most of the time you might not even have any of the answers but that can't um that can't result in you putting your hands up and saying, Hey, I can't go any further. Right? Yeah. You need to be driving. You need to be pushing and you'll pick up some of those answers along the way and be comfortable with the idea that you probably will never have all of them. Right. Yeah. I love that. The thirst for knowledge and being okay that you don't have all the answers is a, it's a pretty key one. Well, good. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for being here, man. I know it's year end and holiday season and eggnog time and everything else. And uh, good to get to know you, man. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast and uh, all the best with the rest of your 2020 and, and onwards to the new year. You bet. All right, everybody, let's wrap this one up right now. Remember, your intention matters. Why? Because that's the result you'll tend to get. We're out of here. We'll do it again next week. Be safe, everybody, and happy holidays.